Hi, I'm Anna-Claire Harper, and you're listening to The Return, property and investment podcast, sharing insights and information on key topics from real estate technology to sustainability. Feel free to get in touch or follow recent news by connecting on LinkedIn, Anna-Claire Harper. Hi, and welcome to The Return, property and investment podcast. I'm Anna, and I'm delighted to be joined by JP Delman, who is a banker turned sustainable investment advocate, whose credentials include as Forbes contributor for social impact investing, as host of one of the leading podcasts in sustainable investment, and as founder and board advisor to multiple sustainable investment companies. So welcome to the podcast, JP, and thank you for joining me. Did I get everything right there? Yes, Anna, yeah. (laughs) I think you do that you did. Yes. Thank you so much, Anna. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. And I guess for listeners of your podcast, since we're publishing it on both, it might be helpful if I just introduce myself as well. Yes, please. So I am Anna. I'm CEO of SPI Capital, which is an algorithm-driven property asset manager with a social conscience. And we create and manage hands-free portfolios for high net worth individuals in the UK, whilst providing much needed quality housing for key workers. And just I suppose, a bit of background. I published a book last year called Strategic Property Investing, which focused on private investors in UK residential property and the problems they're facing. And before this, I developed the strategy and built the seed portfolio for a high net worth backed fund that was targeting a hundred million pound housing portfolio. I was also involved with about two billion of transactions as a strategist at Deloitte and studied real estate at Cambridge. And along the way, did a TEDx talk, host a property podcast, as you know, and do a lot of media commentary, for example, in FT and BBC and in Forbes about housing market trends. So that's me in a nutshell. (laughs) And that's what we're doing this because I think that Anna Claire is fantastic and she's doing some really good work and she's extremely dedicated. As you can tell, it takes a lot of effort to do everything that she's doing. And hence, you know, we are spending the time together to just share a couple of ideas and experiences. So very happy, Anna. Yeah. And I guess in terms of context, one of the reasons that we're doing this as well is because obviously sustainable investing is a massive area of interest for both of us. And in the real estate sector, certainly in my part of the market, there's a massive shortage in terms of best practice and expertise. So I'm now just signed a contract to write my second book, which is on sustainable residential property investing, because it's such a huge problem. You've got $30 trillion of assets under management each year in sustainable investing, but there's no clear usable guidance for basically 83% of investors in the UK housing market who own just a handful of properties. And I think personally, it's a great time for us to push the sector forward. But as part of this, writing a book, speaking to experts in sustainability and real estate, and then basically mining people like you, JP, for information. So that's the plan. (laughs) Yes. And I think that is a very good plan. You know, I think I'll mention through our conversation today, a couple of like the big players, the big hitters, you know, and some of what they are doing. But obviously, you know, it tends to be that those only cover a small percentage of the tickets, right? So and what you're talking about is the wider and larger part of the population. And in this case, I mean, UK focus, but I will maybe bring a couple of examples of some international context in terms of, you know, the actual housing crisis that, you know, is talked about always all over the place, right? Not only in the third world countries or other regions, but in the UK itself. So definitely. Okay. Well, I guess to set the context then, The kind of problems that the investors I work with face, it's, you know, they want to protect their wealth, they want to grow their wealth, they want to be in control, and they want to have an impact. 
What about the kind of investors? I guess we kind of need to set the context here because we're talking about investing, not about charity. What do the investors that you typically work with, what are their problems? Well, it's, I always you know, like talking about that kind of a spectrum of the type of investors and kind of what asset classes, right? So in this case, obviously, we are more specific to real estate. And then you know, in terms of, I think, on real estate, what you can tell from if you look at it, and I'll mention some specific examples, but from a wider perspective of what it means, it means about, you know, it goes all the way up from society, how they're looking at towns and towns behaving and how people are interacting, how we are buying. Obviously now with everything shut, as we know, we have a completely different problem, but, you know, it's infrastructure of a town. That is the first part where, you know, most people don't realize, but, you know, some of the big investors are working with councils to create this, right? And then as you go kind of down the line, then you find potentially some specific, I don't know, if I take as an example of, you know, private equity, you know, we're working with a client, you know, inflows are really good. You know, last year, there was a lot of money thrown into specifically private equity impact funds. But then, you know, in the other side, you know, the problems that they're finding is this maybe lack of impact investments that where they can deploy the capital and the size that they need to deploy that. So there is a lack of all the way from the bottom, lack of entrepreneurship and ideas and then companies that are all structured and done in a way that are intentional, that have key measurement of outcomes, that have theory of change. So those are the I think the problems that investors are finding, just finding everything that ticks all the boxes, right? Mm-hmm. And we talk yeah. about reporting and maybe I'm measuring a little bit, which all kind of aligns to this. But. Yeah, well, that's a good moment to mention it then. So... I guess the way I see it and from my research and work, there's a couple of big issues that are holding back progress in sustainable residential property investing. And they include not being able to measure the impact in a way that's commercially viable. And then also the trade-offs that one necessarily has to make. There's such a huge element of value judgment in what you see as the most important impact. So looking at the measurement point, Given your knowledge of the wider impact investment landscape, what do you think would be the best ways to measure sustainable or ESG impact in residential property? Well, I think there are some different cases I think that you can use. I think that I was looking at the report from LaSalle. You know, again, you know, they manage, you know, billions of pounds. Are they if if anything, I will recommend people to look at, you know, some of the work that they're doing, we may be able to actually add the link to the notes of the podcast as well. So people can check it out, but it's uh, lasal.com just in case and sustainability, I think is the department. And they are looking at all sorts of different areas, right? Not only from the construction, I think you and I talked about this from the construction perspective to start with in terms of the waste that is generating, the CO2 that is generating and the emissions, that's kind of over, you know, one part of it. In terms of the environmental, the E on the ESG, obviously, then you have the jobs that generate or the jobs that you create by, you know, doing some of these projects, which touches more maybe on the social side. And then all the way down to, you know, efficiency of equipments, efficiencies of the actual, not only on the governance side of how the companies, the construction companies are built up and deploying and building and running everything, but then also all the way to know how efficient the actual houses are. And I think you talked about this on a panel that you were with me a couple of weeks ago, last month, I think, that is the easiest way to measure, right? So you can tell how efficient a house is, and that makes it more or less 
sustainable. And then all the way to individuals, I think when you look at sensors, such as, I don't know, not to advertise, but you know, high Ryan's making the consumption of individuals within the houses, which if you look at, I always like looking at the supply chain and all the different steps of how you can become more kind of ESG impactful, right? But mm. please, what do you think? Well, and so I guess this is where I have a bit of a problem with it because a lot of the time when people think about sustainable real estate investing, they basically talk about development, which isn't really the same as investment. And the vast majority of housing stock that people live in in the UK is already built. So the big problem in the sector is improving that stock and therefore therefore you can invest in a way that's sustainable. But the problem is that it's actually often commercially not viable to do that. So it's like, how could you measure your impact in a way that firstly, the actual measurement technique is commercially viable, but secondly, that would enable you to make better investment decisions for the long-term financial returns that you're aiming for? Mm. It's interesting because this is where I like you know, thinking and talking about some of the other examples of how it's being done in other sectors. And we'll talk about that as well, right? But uh, that's where I think we need to start looking at how you can get different type of investors potentially at different levels with different kind of return or risk and return profiles. Uh, I think that's kind of the solution. Sorry, and we're jumping in solutions straight away, but that's a way to think about how we can try to cater for each one and for everyone and to be able to get the private capital involved, you know, together with potentially the philanthropic capital or the government, you know, subsidies that, you know, apply in certain areas, right? So that's the first thing that comes to mind. Mm, it does make sense, but... And it's difficult, I know, because I know some of the deals that you're looking at, right? So it's not that straightforward right? to put like one plus two plus three. Yeah. Exactly, because private investors, for the most part, they're entirely profit motivated, but they want to have a social impact but they didn't want to make a loss. <laughs> Where pension funds, for example, tend to take a longer term view and they're happy with a lower yield from day one or from you know year two or whatever it is. They're happy with a lower return and a lower risk investment, but they can't scale down to this kind of stock. And it really is. The, I mean, I think it's over 95% of the UK housing market is deals that are worth less than 5 million, which the biggest sources of funding in the market cannot afford to scale down to. They're just simply inefficient at that scale. And that's where the problem lies. Anyway. So, and then, so and then no, I was going to mention because like, if you, and, and the challenge from a individual perspective and the mindset perspective, right, is that, if you're coming with a deal and you're telling me actually you're going to be doing you know three or four percent less than if you just go and do any other odd thing yeah. uh, it's, it's very difficult because you know people do want to kind of uh, increase their wealth right and they don't want to miss out on opportunities and then let's be honest you know people that are doing uh, real estate you know tend to be you know, one of the most savvy business people in the market right so uh, why thank you <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly okay, it's so the basis it's the basis of wealth right so real estate so you know real estate attracts generates and requires a lot of capital <laughs> so just going back to the measurement point then ways that i know that we can measure impact Typically, so for the financial returns, you can obviously measure valuation. You can use valuations, basically. So that's kind of a snapshot in time of what's the value of the asset. And you can look at that. You can look at a snapshot this year, next year, the year after, and therefore you can get a growth rate. In terms of the environmental efficiency, for example, you can look at snapshots in terms of EPCs, which are a legal requirement. So that's a very easy way that most investors can get in to measuring their impact. I guess beyond that, 
it's very, very hard. For example, how do we measure the social impact of the investments that we make? You can look at, I mean, customer satisfaction. Is there anything from your experience, your work and your research that you think would be a good way to actually measure that, that doesn't cost you more than it's worth to measure? Yeah, I think, again, it's specific to each area, right? So I think when we did that panel, we were talking about also how long, for example, people stay in some of these type of housing supply, right? So it's not that much longer that you can actually measure, you know, how much of an impact living in that certain place had, right? So okay. uh, that's something to, it's like, like a, I don't know if it's a nuance, but it's a detail that people may not appreciate. So then, you know, I think I mentioned to you in terms of intentionality that changes within individuals as well and may, and ask those questions while people are living at this location. Yeah, explain uh, the intentionality thing because not everyone will know what that means. Yeah, well, so I picked it up from, I think, I interviewed Simon Bond, you know, my podcast, and I'll measure a couple of episodes as well for people to like relate to or refer to if they want to. And he's a super Simon, impressive guy. What's his, remind me Simon what Simon Bond, is. yeah, he runs a kind of social bonds area for Columbia Thread Needle, who is, you know, one of the biggest uh, investor managers out there. And they basically invest, you know, so they raise capital to put in what is called social bonds. So let's say some examples that I like that they use is they would invest in universities, for example, in the accommodation in the universities, for example. So it's kind of long-term, you know, low return, but it's pretty steady in terms of, you know, how it flows, a good performance. So, you know, if people go and check it out and it's kind of a whole market that is growing. So there, is, there are green bonds, you know, issued by the kind of national states as we kind of know them a lot more, but not as many social bonds. And there's a couple that are coming now with the UK and France being involved. But then, for example, sorry, going to the answer. So they mention intentionality in terms of they, so the university will go and do talks to people that potentially have not the possibility to go to university to try to help them understand how they can get into university, right? And even on just with the talks, they will interview people, understand if people change their intention, if the intention of not going to university versus going to university has changed, and then they try to track that over time. So that's a very simple example that you think, well, it's a bit, I don't know, you can argue it from every angle, right? It's a bit far-fetched, it's a bit like, you know, but it is a very simple, you know, real way that a major investment company is trying to measure, you know, how their money is being, is affecting mm -hmm. people, right? So in your case, if you take that, and then I was trying to use that example to apply it to you and your case, it's like, okay, how can you effectively have that relationship and engagement with people to really get a sense of, you know, is it really making a difference that, you know, you live in a hole or you live in this place that is actually, is, you know, a really nice place to live in. And we do know, by this is just psychology and just by neuroscience, that, you know, the environment defines you, you know, at about, you know, I can't remember now, I see the thing is like 40%, right, of your personality, right? So I, I believe that, read that before. Yeah. Yeah, no, I haven't read it, but I believe yeah, that. Definitely. 10% DNA, 40% environment, including the school where you live, people you hang out with, etc. And 50% action and what you do. Ah, oh, that's very interesting. Hmm. Okay, so also on the theme of intention then, and moving on towards the trade-offs. So I guess, again, coming to the, back to the same point, and it does kind of come back to what do you measure, what do you care about? There is kind of an underlying trade-off because, okay, assume that you're a profit-motivated investor, medium to long-term. 
like most of the investors that I work with, and same for you. There's so many different ways you could prioritize. For example, do you want to solve the housing crisis? Do you want to solve the climate crisis? How do you want to? The one thing I was going to bring up is: Do you want to uh, solve for the older generation, which is a big thing as well? And also, I'm not sure necessarily that we've always got the solution right. Because, for example, with the housing crisis, the default assumption is build more houses. But actually, there's other ways of doing it. For example, if you improve infrastructure, making areas where there's already houses more attractive. There's so many different solutions, but our default is something that is relatively simple compared to the, for example, the infrastructure. Anyway, I'm going off topic. So what do you think is the most important area of impact in, let's say, the residential sustainable investment area? Would it be social or environmental or something else? No, I think I wrote this, you know, as I was preparing for the call, you know, I was thinking in my mind is a balance, right? So I don't think it's one or the other or one more than the other. I was going to say, you could argue you know, for both ways, you know, in terms of, you know, one, social is more important, right? Because if we don't sort out the social side, you know, we cannot evolve and therefore we cannot find the solutions and we cannot deliver on the solutions, right? But then if you don't have, I'm going to bring a really good example of, you know, the process and I'm going to go international, by the way, but I think all of this thinking and some of the ideas, you know, applies and helps, Definitely. helps us all. Uh, but if you think about, so I think Bill Gates just did another interview, uh, one of these 60 minutes that just came out last week. And they were talking about how, you know, the problem that again, climate crisis is going to generate. Right? I'm coming to something. But then one of the biggest issues in everyone's mouth this last week is, again, displacement. Right? So people moving around. So, you know, in the UK, is you know, that we know and we're very know from Brexit, you know, how we don't like, you know, people coming from abroad. And but it's not new and it's going to keep growing, you know, as we have more problems, right? On the social side, on the environmental side and the social side. And then I remember having uh, Mauricio Rodriguez from former head of impact investing at Barclays in the podcast, right? And he was launching a LADOF, which is a fund just to help displacement, people in displacement, which is on the millions in South America. Again, people don't know Colombia, Venezuela, Brazil, right? So this is going to create a bigger problem. You know, and we need to be thinking about how do we, again, solve for environment and solve for social together. And again, I don't know if you know, but in the U.S., I think they're passing a bill now for so asking for like 39 billion just to help with climate change. But within climate change is effectively displacement is effectively housing. Right. So all of these things, I think, that are good considering because you cannot just, I think, solve for one. So I agree with you, but I also disagree because... As you will know, when you're running your own business, you need a priority. Like priority is a singular word and having so many priorities. In the examples that I've looked at, certainly, it can lead people to, you end up making sacrifices on both sides because it is very difficult to prioritize and solve multiple problems at once and to retain a profit. Yes, sorry. I, like, I always like your thinking, Anna, because, okay, if I had to choose... I'll go for, as a, as a businessman now, business had, you know, is I'm trying to sort out for environment, right? Because mm-hmm. it's kind of the, the most straightforward. And also, unless it's the one thing that we cannot really let go because it's going to catch up so fast with us. You know, we're not going to be able to go backwards, right? I'm really glad that you said that. I'm really glad that you said that, yes. Because it is very hard to decide on a single priority. And actually, the same solution may be applicable if you have more than one priority and one priority, but it's... 
I think you need a decision-making framework as an investor of any or an operator of any kind. And I saw, for example, that's another point. So I mentioned LaSalle before. So they have the, it's called the ULI Green Print Net Zero Carbon X 2050, right? So I think 2050, net zero for 2050 for me is too far ahead, too long, you know? So that's another thing that I think that we need to keep pulling the deadline towards. But then you just wouldn't build any more houses because it's one of the most damaging pursuits there is in terms of construction. It's one of the most damaging pursuits there is. So then you would end up, you know, firstly, losing construction jobs. Secondly, not having any new houses, which is very much part of the policy agenda for the government. So, I mean, this is an impossible task and we're probably not going to solve it on this podcast. But I guess it's that subtlety of choosing one priority over the other does inevitably lead to trade-offs. And it's not for either of us to say which one's, you know, what's worth more than the other. But it is pretty obvious that for the greatest, if you took a utilitarian perspective, the greatest good for the greatest number, the problem to solve is obviously climate change. Yes, yes, totally agree. I was just going to say another thing that I wanted to bring up, because again, we're not going to solve it here. But also, I think what I like about the podcast is that we can share, you know, some of the thinking and some of the questions, you know, for other people to ponder on, you know, and try to work out. But uh, another thing I wanted to bring up was I had a conversation with the people at uh, 17 Africa. It's called 17africa.org. An amazing man called Garrett uh, or Harriet Haynes. And he was telling me, you know, that try that in South Africa. And they're trying to solve for their problems, right? And they calculate that they need to be building 30, and wait for it, right? <laughs> I sat down, so 30,000 homes a day, right? To be able to supply the amount of houses that they need in order to achieve, you know, the goals that they have. So when he broke it down, I don't know, I'm looking at your face, people cannot see your face, but you know, your eyes are kind of wide open. <laughs> You know, some yeah. countries have like, you know, and some regions have like massive, massive, you know, challenges and issues, right? So they are trying to sort out, trying to understand, and obviously imagine to be able to build 30,000 houses a day, what amount of people do you need? What amount of, you know, machines and constructions and, right? And we're going to talk about innovation and I have an example of a technology, but uh, it's super challenging, mm. super challenging, right? Yeah. So anyway, let me stop there. So... It's great having examples, actually, because I think certainly my part of the residential property market has to learn. It's an imperative to learn from other sectors and from other parts of the market. So just on that then, what are some of the best examples you've seen of sustainable investing from a real estate sector and how did they work? Yeah, I think, again, you know, I'm going to just maybe repeat myself with some of the other ones I mentioned. Now, another one I was going to mention, perhaps there's a really good example, and I will also share the link with people, is uh, I, I, I like them a lot. They are actually heading or leading the way by uh, Shredders. Mm-hmm. So Shredders have a, actually already in 2019, they had, you know, one of the reports on real estate, which was really good and how they were using and applying their investments to have an impact in society, right, through real estate. And I think I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, so they, let me just see if I find the name of the town, but they did the whole town, basically, that they invest in. It's a problem. It's such a big topic. It's impossible. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, so I had it on top of my head. And then, yeah, Shredders were working with this town, which is called, it's the town center of Bracknell, which is in the southeast of England. That's uh, where I grew up. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's very close. Yeah. <laughs> 
and basically, but they've been working with them for like 15 years and they did this kind of 54,000 square meter lexicon Bracknell scheme, you know, that they did in 17. But that's a kind of, in case people don't know, I like to bring up to the attention, right? So they can actually understand how they looked at, you know, energy consumption and renewables at the time, how they worked, you know, in terms of the, they have targets in the reduction of CO2 equivalent in tons and then in money in savings, you know, for the town. And then, you know, the type of kind of social and environmentally conscious hotels that they were opening there. And then obviously the impact kind of investing on it and the return. So they've been looking at every part of it and then looking at kind of the, kind of what they call the new real estate sectors, you know, with impact opportunity. And they, they bring up uh, social supported housing, which you may know more than me on it in terms of the characteristics that they have, et cetera. And then I mentioned to you about retirement living, which is another one of the areas, right? So I definitely would take that as a good example of looking at, you know, all the different parts of investing in real estate. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then I guess what about mistakes or misunderstandings in pursuit of sustainable investment and how we can avoid those kind of mistakes going forward? I have, of course, got some thoughts on this as well. <laughs> yeah, you, go, you go, you go first then. You go first. I think one of the biggest issues is Firstly, we've talked about the measurement. There's like a massively overwhelming amount of literature, frameworks, measurements, different organizations, and that can lead to overwhelm and inaction, which is a problem. Secondly, there is that, you know, how do you prioritize one person or one need over another? And then thirdly, I think that still in the corporate world, there is a big, the PR element of sustainable investing can create problems, I think, because it is seen effectively as a PR marketing exercise. And then that leads to things like, for example, people wanting to offset their carbon footprint, paying money to someone to plant trees on their behalf, and then those trees being chopped down almost immediately afterwards. And you can't control that as someone who's working in a corporate that's just looking to do a bit of good. But because there's so many different people involved, because there's this emphasis on PR and marketing, basically, via sustainability, there's some incentives, I suppose, that have got a bit mangled along the way. And I think that's a problem that not everyone sees. Like from the outside, you can look at someone's website and be like, oh, brilliant, they've planted a thousand trees or whatever. But you can't see the subtlety of, firstly, I guess there's that greenwashing topic of the damage they've done versus the trees they've planted. And secondly, there's then that wider piece of, is this just a marketing thing? They just want to pay to get the problem off their back? Or are they genuinely living and breathing this? And I'm not criticizing either I'm not criticizing anyone on this because I think there's, it's understandable, but I do think it's problematic in terms of actual impact. Yeah. I like looking at things, you know, I like it because I think we do a good team. You look at very specifics. I look at kind of, you know, higher level, you know, in terms of the different parts, but without trying to like repeat or reply to each one of your points, I think I'm going to start with, let me, let me start perhaps with, there is different parts to it and you cannot like try to dominate everything. That's definitely a very important point. You know, I think you have to, I always say, you know, try to focus on what you can control, what you can, you know, work with and achieve. Right. So that's, I think the, the kind of a step one, a step two or part two is that, you know, you mentioned some of the other things that are happening, you know, so if you do something good or you're trying to offset and then you do the other part, you know, is potentially using the timber for, you know, commercial use and again, generating waste and CO2, et cetera. 
all I can say about that is that, you know, having actually been, having working with the timber specialists, you know, and they also manage, you know, several billions and they have, you know, several funds just working on this. What people don't know is that the evolution of reporting is such, and I've been talking a lot in the latest episode about something called Article 8, Article 9, so it's the EU taxonomy and how you are reporting on your funds and where you invest the money. So maybe higher level than, you know, the person that owns one house, but it is happening that you have to be able to provide information and supply the information and report on the KPIs that show that you're truly sustainable, let's say, timber business, right? That you are growing trees, you know, with certain intention and outcomes, you know, in terms of how you manage the trees. Uh, so it's an evolution. It, we're definitely moving in the right direction. We always say that. And obviously now the question is, is that happening at every level in every region, right? So I think it's starting always and being led by Europe and it will get better, but I have no doubt about that. So people, I don't think they have to worry about it. They definitely have to learn about it and raise, you know, conscious about it. And then the other thing I was going to mention to you, which I noted was the challenge for me is this whole focus on growth and returns, right? So, and that is, I mentioned before, it's a very human condition. You know, how do you change that, that people just want to keep growing and making a lot of money or as much as they can? And I think that's the biggest mistake, I would say. I would put it within the mistake category that people cannot get around their heads that it doesn't matter how much money you make if we don't have, you know, a world, you know, you cannot enjoy it. You know, your children cannot enjoy it. For sure, your grandchildren won't be able to enjoy it. You know, and I think that how do we change that mentality, I think would be the biggest challenge. And then the last one I was going to mention, so a friend of mine who also connects with like very, very good and high level investors and CIO, we have a, what is called, what we refer to sometimes as a, it's related to in- incentives and rewards, you know, how it's all set up or has been set up until now in terms of, you know, if you are the person responsible for investing the money, uh, you still, and within this with the excuse of this fiduciary duty of, you know, how you invest other people's money that you had to try to keep making, you know, the highest return for them. And a lot of these CIOs are kind of older generation. They are all in the kind of in the last hundred meters of their careers. So, you know, they are about to retire. So they don't want to look bad. They don't want to get fired. So they have this dilemma, right? And the series is the sustainable investment dilemma on my side, right? Is this dilemma, okay, how do I do it? Because I need to do good, but, you know, I don't get paid if I don't hit this target. And actually, you know, people just want to have higher returns. So I think unless we change that in terms of incentives and rewards, which some people think that is only going to change with the next generations of CIOs. But again, I don't think we have the time to be waiting, you know, another five or 10 years for that to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really, really interesting point. So what examples inspire you around sustainability from beyond the real estate sector? Well, I think uh, one that is one of the best out there and happens to be, uh, it's called Blue Orchard, right? And the company is called Blue Orchard. It happens to have been bought by Shredders as well recently or last year. And I spoke to their former CEO, Dr. Patrick Schorle, who again, you can listen to him on my podcast. But it's interesting to see how they, it's a very special organization, though it was originally created, you know, by the UN and then it was privatized. So they do a lot of microfinance around the world. But again, they do billions, right? But they manage the full cycle in terms of, you know, having in-country offices, managing the partnerships 
And the one thing that stuck in my head was about having people on site training, you know, these kind of micro entrepreneurs. And I think that that is the one thing that we, and we do do it in large corporations or even in smaller companies, we appreciate the importance of training people and, you know, upskilling them. And, but I think there is something around sustainability that we need to like really hone down and put it into everything that we're doing. Even if I look at some of the, the diligence, you know, forms and requests from some of the investors with some of the funds we're working, still the first questionnaire is full of performance related questions. There's nothing about sustainability. This one may be out of you know, 20. So I think I still see and think that it's just still such a small part of it where I potentially could have something that next to everything we do, we have how do we learn and how does the impact yeah. the sustainability and the impact of what we're doing, right? And if you start every project, you know, especially with your deals, you know, with that mindset, with that approach, with that including the processes, that could make, you know, a huge difference. Really, really good point. And I think anywhere, anytime you want to make an actual operational change, which this is a strategic and operational really, but it's all about, like you said, it's like team, technology and systems in my mind. And the team, like you said, we've got this generational shift happening now. And at some point, the teams that are making these decisions will be of a younger generation consistently that care about the future of the planet and the social impact they're having. We're maybe not there yet consistently throughout. And then in terms of the technology, we're going to talk about that in a second. And then just on the systems point, I think this is really important because like you said, it's like when you're filling in a form, what are the questions you're being asked? That's something that's potentially really easy to change on a systemic level by asking the right questions to your point from earlier. So what are the best examples of innovation and technology that facilitate profitable, sustainable investment, ideally in the real estate sector uh, that you've seen? So interesting, you know, I'm going to go maybe a smaller, but with potential now, and it's a really good way to bring everything together and maybe finish, you know, the recordings. By this, so I came across, we used to have a really nice club in London called the Conduit Club, you know, that unfortunately due to COVID, you know, ended up on the wrong side of COVID, right? But one of the presentations by some of the entrepreneurs and the impact companies there, I met the founder of a company called NXT Tech. And I found, aside from him, who is unbelievable and extremely inspirational man, and the CEO, which is an incredible woman as well, I would definitely recommend people to reach out to them. They are based out of, I think it's Western Australia. So all the way down under. Uh, but basically NXT Tech, what they build, they create something called a modular building. Mm, yeah. And a way, but in a way they create everything and they build everything, design everything before they actually had the company, right? So the whole process and includes the making in terms of the components of the modules, how fast, you know, what emissions, what is made of, then in terms of how long it takes, how easy it is to put together. So that putting the, I think they started with some hotels first and now I'll come back to how big they're going. But then the other thing that they did is that they actually created a software. So it's actually a construction company. So it's a design company, construction company, but then really it's a software company because they have like, you know, like remember AutoCAD? I don't know if you yeah. know, but so it's basically people can get the software, design the whole building, 
and then basically well, now they're building partnerships around the world in terms of you know certified builders that they can build the modules and you can basically put a request design your building put a request and within like record time they can produce all the parts and I'm trying to remember exactly how much faster, but I'm pretty sure that it was something, let's say, I'm going to misquote here, but let's say you can do it 30% faster and cheaper by just using this methodology, right? I think maybe more, but yeah. yeah. Yes, I think it was more, but I'm just trying to like, and then what they done in terms of, you know, the big thinking is that they are in conversations with actual councils or, you know, mayors, you know, whole cities. So for example, they were talking to, the government in Jakarta in Indonesia. I don't know if people know, but Jakarta is going to be one of the first cities to go underwater. It's already actually suffering. If you haven't watched it, there's some, you know, very uh, unfortunately eye-opening but sad documentaries on YouTube. But basically, they are talking to them and they are looking at building a whole brand new Jakarta away from the sea. So because wow. they have the capability, right? So going back all full circle to these thirty thousand houses, you know. Uh, we were talking about uh, yeah. 17 Africa. Uh, this is how innovation, you know, and these great minds can help and technology uh, can help, you know, solve for these problems that we have. That's really, really inspiring, actually. Wow. What an amazing note to end on. So thank you so much for sharing all of your insights. And it's been really interesting to hear your thoughts. So just for, I guess, listeners of my podcast, if they want to find out more about you or what you do or your podcast, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Well, by by all means, you know, you're going to be listening to this wonderful podcast. And then also it will be on the Impact Leaders podcast. You know, my company, if you want, you can connect with me personally on LinkedIn, which tends to be the easier way. And then if you could maybe as a reference, Anna Clea's podcast or Impact Leaders. It made it to put Anna Clea's or SPI Capital as the reference. I'll know so that I know that it comes from here. One of four different references they could Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And then in terms of all, go to my company website, which is ilaandpartners.com. And again, you can read all about it on the website, but basically we are an advisory firm and soon to launch multi-asset management firm you know, focusing on sustainable and impact investing. So again, we're looking for partners and people that want to help us with the transition of capital. And obviously that's why we are working with Anaclea as well. Brilliant. Thank you. And then I guess if anyone wants to hear from Reach me, out. Yeah. <laughs> it's spi.capital is our company website. And then the podcast is at bit.ly slash return podcast. And the book is at bit.ly slash strategic property investing. And I love connecting with people on LinkedIn. So I like it. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Take care. We'll speak soon. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Return. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast.